Sorry about that. Never slam a soda right before you're going to go on the air, because burping ensues. Live from traditional lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today, Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your week? Uh, it was pretty good until I had to explain to a two-year-old uh, the meaning of the term extinction. Thing, uh, things get very existentially real when you have to describe that to a kid. So, was this just a random two-year-old? Are you stopping kids on the street and explaining extinction to them? Yeah, we got to start somewhere. <laughs> I like your outreach program. It sounds very good. Today on This Is Hell, every president the United States has ever had is a freaking racist. They all supported white supremacy because if they didn't, they wouldn't have been allowed to run for president. That's right, even Obama was a racist. And don't get me started about the other first black president, Bill Clinton. All of them, from Washington to Lincoln to Kennedy, were a bunch of racists. We'll learn how all U.S. presidents have enforced and supported racism when we speak to Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist Margaret Kimberly, author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Margaret's Freedom Rider column appears weekly in Black Agenda Report at blackagendareport.com. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as announce this week's winner, and we'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell, and what's happening on the show next week. And, of course, the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff punctures the balloons and hands and feet of the faithful. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com the person with the best answer to this week's question wins margaret kimberly's book prejudential alex do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell oh yeah we got a bunch sebastian w w says don't ask what his money can do for you is wow that, is that my headphones or yeah, your headphones doing that that's yours okay uh, don't ask what uh, his money can do for you ask what you can do for his money uh bloomberg all the thrills of stop and frisk combined with obama's kill list <laughs> jeff TF says Bloomberg is Democrat, Trump is Republican, in that uh, uppercase and lowercase SpongeBob meme thing. John T says uh, Michael Bloomberg is a uh, brilliant man who's come up with many uh, well thought out practical ideas <laughs> and is ensuring the democratic future of this country. Oh, and his personal hygiene is beyond reproach. And then he posted a gif of a yellow cartoon man. 
Josh J says, a chance for another racist, misogynist, sexually harassing billionaire Republican in the White House. Since that glass ceiling was already broken, let's do it again. Uh, Gorilla G says, he's actually taller in person. And Nathaniel T says, I've created a series of deep faked dummy accounts that rave about their experiences taking a maternity leave at Bloomberg LP. A lot of heightest remarks in there. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and you can rate This is Hell on Facebook. And so far, nearly 200 people have. And on a scale from one to five stars, we have a five-star rating. If you rate This is Hell on Facebook and leave a comment, we'll read yours on air like Cheryl's, who gave us five stars and recently posted about This is Hell, smart, thoughtful, in-depth interviews that always make me want to read more. Jamie also gave us five stars, writing excellent in-depth interviews with amazing guests. And we also got a five-star rating from Sam, who says, one of the best podcasts today, and they recently switched to a daily format. This is hell, but I'm in heaven with all the great content. You, too, can rate This Is Hell and leave a comment at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And if you do, we'll read yours on air. We also got an email this week from Tarver, who writes... The harsh, jarring new intro has lost whatever charm novelty once confirmed, conferred. Please move on. Tarver. P.S. Wasn't I supposed to get some kind of prize for recommending Jem Bendel way back last year? Probably seized by customs. P.P.S. Rotten history rocks. First, Tarver, to the best of my knowledge, we have been playing the same intro for over 20 years, so I don't know how it's changed in any way. Second, yes, you were supposed to get subvertising stickers, but now because of your snide remark, hmm, I'm not too sure. Maybe not, hmm. Third, yes, Rotten History does rock. Thank you, Ronaldo. We also got an email from Calvin who writes, let's see, hey, fellas. I hope all is well with you. In honor of John Bellamy Foster's appearance on your show this week, here are some monthly review-related guest suggestions I've been meaning to send for a while now. Paul Cockshot on How the World Works. Fred Wilcox on Shamrocks and Old Oil Slicks. Pem Davidson Buck on The Punishment Monopoly. Gerald Horn on The Dawning of the Apocalypse. And Sean Richmond on Tell the Bosses We're Coming. Also, Cal Winslow on Radical Seattle. On an unrelated note, I may be in your neck of the woods in June. I know you are in need of long-term local volunteers, but if you could use a guest co-producer for a few days, I would love to help out. I have a fair amount of mixing experience, but would really just love to sit in and watch the magic happen. If that would be of any help to y'all, I'll be sure to have it in mind as I finalize my plans. Also, what music was playing before Tuesday's show? I need more of it in my life. Love and solidarity, Calvin. Calvin, those are all fantastic suggestions. In fact, I think your first suggestion, Paul Cockshot, on how the world works is already scheduled to be on the show next week. And yes, we definitely have to get Gerald Horn back on the show. And you can hear our talks with Gerald at thisishell.com when you search on his last name, Horn, that's H-O-R-N-E. Alex has been picking uh, some excellent music lately. Uh, went to play prior to the show, so we'll try to get Alex to share his playlist with you in the near future. Finally, about volunteers, Calvin. If you want to work on the show or be a board operator, anybody out there is listening, if you want to work on the show or be a board operator, producer, or help us with rebuilding our archives or writing transcripts of interviews or monologues that I've done, uh, email us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com, which reminds me, join us every Friday night beginning at our new time, starting at 7 p.m. and going until at least 10 p.m. 
p.m. for This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. The bar downstairs from these here studios. If you are interested in volunteering, drop by and we'll show you our interview booth and control room. Now we do our show from uh, studios above Carrie's Lounge, as I was saying. There's also a meeting space up here that is open for anyone in the community or community groups to organize in a neutral setting. You don't have to uh, meet at a friend's house or have people over to your house. You don't have to clean up your place. You can have a neutral site to meet. If you are interested, contact me again, Chuck at thisishell.com, and I'll connect you with the people in charge of scheduling at the space. Again, if you are a community member or organization who is looking for a neutral space to meet, contact me at Chuck at thisishell.com, and we just might have the space for you. Coming up, every person who has become president of the United States is a racist. We'll also have some more of your answers to this week's question from hell. What we're doing on Patreon this week, a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch, and this week Jeff punctures the balloons and hands and feet of the faithful, as well as what's happening on next week's shows. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry, live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. From Washington who did not free the slaves upon his death, as the myth goes, and lied to deceive the public about his slave ownership, to Lincoln, who didn't want to free the slaves as much as ethnically cleanse them, to Kennedy, who was no fan of Martin Luther King Jr., to Obama, who said a lot of racist stuff but was given a pass. All our presidents have been racist. Here to discuss our racist presidents, Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist Margaret Kimberly is author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Welcome to This Is Hell, Margaret. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that we're finally having you on the show. I think uh, Glenn Ford has been on our show, I think, a dozen, 25 times. I don't even know how many times. Bruce Dixon was on our show a bazillion times. I don't know how we missed out on this before, so I'm really glad that we're having you on the show. You start by quoting W.E.B. Du Bois saying, In 1956, I shall not go to the polls. I have not registered. I believe that democracy has so far disappeared in the United States that no two evils exist. There is but one evil party with two names, and it will be elected despite all I can do or say. But... Margaret, we could have had Adlai Stevenson as president instead of Dwight Eisenhower. That would have been a revolution. <laughs> uh, lesser of two evils, right? While the two parties are very similar in many ways, very similar to each other, are the incremental differences between the two parties enough to, say, support the Democrats over the Republicans? Because while they may not be great for those who are the most vulnerable in the most precarious positions in society, they're at least better than the Republicans, right? Uh, marginally better, I would say. I would. I, I have to admit, I would prefer having a Democratic president uh, appointing uh, federal judges than a Republican. But that's about all I can come up with. Uh, both parties are capitalist, of course. Both parties are pro-war. Both parties are uh, in the pocket of corporate interests. And uh, so we see that these differences are small and getting smaller all the time. We also see Democrats being used to get away with things that Republicans couldn't. So uh, Bush, uh, Bush 41 couldn't pass NAFTA, but uh, Bill Clinton did. Uh, Republicans dreamed of getting rid of the right to public assistance, but Bill Clinton did. Uh, deregulated the financial services industry. He did that. Reagan uh, uh, 
attempted, made a small effort to assassinate Muammar Gaddafi, the president of Libya. But uh, Obama not only got Gaddafi killed, but destroyed the entire nation. So uh, these are the things that we see throughout history when we see presidents who do the right thing uh, by the people, uh, especially for black people. It's because of demands popular demand. Uh, it's because of movements from below. And we cannot give any of these people credit even when they uh, end up doing something that is right. The presidency is uh, fundamentally uh, a racist institution because the U.S. is a racist nation founded as a settler colonial state. And all of our institutions support that. So we have a litany of wrongdoing uh, committed by 45 different people. So why do we glorify the actions, uh, give those actions, give the credit to the president and not give them to the people? Why don't we make heroes out of the people instead of the president? Well, that's a good question. That's what we should do. You know, when uh, uh, I talk to people about the book and no one can question the facts that I present, but I will inevitably hear something like, well, can't I still admire Lincoln? Can't I admire this one or admire that one? Because people want people want to feel positive uh, about their country and about their institutions and uh, want to defend their system. And my response is always, well, let's admire different people. If there's a white man from the 1800s that you want to glorify, it ought to be John Brown. Uh, it shouldn't be Abraham Lincoln. And uh, the reason we don't talk about the um, uh, what the people accomplish is, well, that would be true democracy. Democracy, and we don't have that. Uh, we have a lot of mythology. We have people trying to convince themselves that their country is uh, better than it actually is. And so we have. We just had President's Day. We have a national holiday which glorifies. Uh, all of them. We have cities named after them, schools named after them. I mean, how many people didn't go to a Lincoln or Jefferson or Washington high school? Um, but that is in order to support the system, to tell everybody that everything is okay, this is the best of all possible worlds, this is the leader of the free world, et cetera, et cetera. And if you started talking about the people, that would mean that people have to remain active. And that would be an admission also that this, is, uh, this country is not nearly as good as everyone wants to believe. You were mentioning Bill Clinton earlier, and while I was reading your book, I couldn't help but wonder how you react to the claim that Bill Clinton was the first black president. How do you feel about that framing? What do you think about that label? What's your response to that kind of thought? Well, it's it's funny now, of course, when Tony, the late uh, writer Tony Morrison, uh, made that statement, nobody foresaw actually having a black president. Um, it is, um, it's, it's interesting because his his record was never that good. He was just a Democrat. We have a, you know, in this system, we have one party, which is the de facto white people's party, and black people uh, gravitate to the other. And we accept anything. We accept even Clinton's racism. We accept him, accepted him uh, executing a mentally disabled black man during the 1992 campaign, the sister soldier moment in 
embarrassing Jesse Jackson. His uh, really shameful photo op at Stone Mountain, Georgia, where he posed in front of a uh, group of um, uh, inmates, mostly black men, uh, talking about how he was uh, tough on crime. But we, the Lonnie Guineer, uh, dumping Lonnie Guineer's nomination, all of those things were overlooked because he's supposed to be better than a Republican. And because a lot of people on the right hated him, uh, I think also because of his more humble beginnings. So uh, all these efforts to convince ourselves that he was our president led him, led her to label him uh, as the first black president, metaphorically. Then, of course, we actually got one, got a black president, and um, uh, I, I always said, uh, you know, all these years, my entire life, uh, black people debated whether there could whether there could be a black president or not. And uh, I, as I matured politically, I asked myself, well, would we want one? I mean, if we got one, would we be sorry we did? And my answer to that question is yes, because we got a president who did what all his predecessors do, but he just looked like us. Uh, but that meant he was also the target of uh, of racist opposition, and that made us glorify him and elevate him even more. So, so yes, it is funny now for uh, that expression of Clinton being the first black president. It's uh, amusing now, but um, not so funny when you think about uh, our condition after we had a uh, actually had a black president. You write that most Americans are taught from childhood, for instance, that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were brave and brilliant men in an, any number of ways. But the fact that both men owned human beings as slaves is rarely mentioned in telling their stories or assessing their character. Now, I've heard their slave owning rationalized away by apologists who argue, hey, it was a different time. Everybody had slaves back then. Why not excuse Washington and Jefferson or any of these presidents as mere prod products of their racist time? Well, that um, uh, covers up a multitude of sins uh, to, to uh, excuse um, uh, inhumane behavior in this country or anywhere. And also, there were always people who opposed slavery. Um, there were always abolitionists. Their, their movement um, didn't always have great strength, but there were always people who questioned. Um, the state of Pennsylvania, uh, well, let me go back a little bit. The capital was not always Washington, D.C. It was created. Uh, Washington was inaugurated in New York City. Then the capital moved further south to Philadelphia. And this presented a problem for Washington because Philadelphia had a law. Any enslaved person who was in the state for six months was free. Proof, of course, that there were people who thought about whether slavery was right or wrong. Um, that's one of the reasons they built a capital between Maryland and Virginia, because you could not have presidents who were uh, inconvenienced. Uh, Washington got around that by rotating uh, enslaved people between uh, Philadelphia and Mount Vernon, not allowing anyone to stay six months. So there was always an abolitionist movement. There were always people who questioned. Uh, the Polish uh, officer, uh, Tadeusz Kosciuszko, um, gave Jefferson money. He, Kosciuszko, had been a slaveholder himself. 
himself. He freed all of his enslaved people. He left money in his will to Thomas Jefferson and told him, use this money to purchase the slavery, uh, purchase the freedom, rather, of your enslaved people, because that was always Jefferson's excuse. He would go broke if he had to free people. So Kosciuszko said, here's some money, uh, use this to uh, free people. Uh, he died before Jefferson. Jefferson never used the money to free anyone. Uh, there was a man named Edward Coles. He was a secretary to uh, Jefferson and Madison. He was related to Dolly Madison. He was a Virginia slaveholder. He left the state, took enslaved people with them, took them to Illinois, and freed them. So there were always, there was always a movement. There were always people who pointed out this is wrong. But uh, so we cannot and should not excuse slaveholding or anything else that uh, we now know to be wrong by uh, using that uh, uh, trope, that excuse. You write that despite claims the contrary, Americans are highly indoctrinated in the belief of American superiority. And a little bit later, you write that when Washington's dentures became ill-fitting and painful, he chose to get teeth from the people he owned from slaves. Records show that they were paid 122 shillings for nine teeth, less than a third the going rate at the time. So I'm betting... This did not come up this week during that new History Channel series called Washington. Uh, it seems like in, that we're in indoctrination denial, but we're also in denial not just about indoctrination, but continuing propaganda, not just the indoctrination from K through 12 learning, but what we see on TV. How much are we in, in kind of indoctrination denial and propaganda denial? Well, Americans, you know, when the word propaganda is always used about another country, people are propagandized somewhere else. They're propagandized in China or they're propagandized in Russia, some country that our government doesn't like, by the way. Um, but we are no less propagandized. Uh, when you, th I don't recall being taught in school that Washington was a slaveholder. I went to, uh, I was a Girl Scout, I think I was 12 years old. We went on a trip to Washington, to Mount Vernon, among other places. I was never told that Washington was a slaveholder. Um, not only uh, that, but even when it's revealed, people still insist on finding some way of excusing them or praising them. And uh, I, I think that um, that comes from this desire to believe in uh, American goodness. Americans talk a lot about being good, even as our country does things that are bad. We even justify invading or occupying other countries and saying that it's for someone's good. And uh, thinking about uh, the truth of our history uh, just creates too much cognitive dissonance for most people. When uh, shortly after Trump was elected, and uh, the issue of monuments, uh, uh, Confederate monuments came up, and, and Trump said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to take down Jefferson and Washington's monuments? They were slaveholders. And New York Times took a poll of their readers, and only 4% of New York Times readers, not Trump fans ordinarily, only 4% said that Washington uh, and monuments to Jefferson and Washington should be removed. And if that's not proof of... Uh, uh, indoctrination. I don't know what is. Um, the indoctrination continues. It's uh, uh, condoned at the top, carried out at the top. When I think about all the things that I revealed in this book that I was never taught in school or in college, it's very clear that these scholars and biographers 
uh, lie and omissions are lies. So if you don't talk about the fact that Washington actually extracted other people's teeth uh, and transplanted them uh, for him for himself, this is not top secret information. I didn't have access to some secret archive, but uh, people know where their bread is buttered and they know it's bread and it's buttered on uh, continuing the notion of American exceptionalism and uh, the idea of American goodness. So the propaganda goes on. We see it every day in the corporate media. Uh, the U.S. is is good. Other people are bad, even as we uh, excel only in uh, mass incarceration and the size of our military budget. You quote Washington writing in a 1791 letter, writing, if upon taking good advice, it is found expedient to send slaves back to Virginia from Pennsylvania because after six months they would be turning free. I wish to have it accomplished under pretext that may deceive both them and the public. So why is it so important to have this story of Washington never telling a lie? Uh, what's, the, what's the reason that we have, why is it so important for him to be seen as this honest person when we actually have documented proof that he wanted to deceive the public, wanted to lie to the people? Uh, because that puts the whole project into question. It puts the whole country into question. And uh, you have to face not only the truth about the country's past, but how that has impacted the present. You cannot have a, a, a situation as we have here, where a group of people were enslaved for from the time of the first settler uh, colonies being established, uh, slavery for over 200 years, followed by uh, two brief reconstruction, followed by nearly 100 years of Jim Crow racism. Uh, if you talk about that, then it's clear why we have police brutality directed against black people. Then it's clear why half of all the people incarcerated in this country are black. Um, we would have to have a true reckoning. We would have to have true systemic revolutionary change in order for the people who experienced that uh, to be uh, treated in a just and equitable way. So it's much easier for most people just to deny uh, and to ignore. So let's move to the 19th century uh, and uh, Abraham Lincoln. You write Abraham Lincoln was long credited with being the great emancipator and the anti-slavery president. He was, in fact, quite openly racist and often expressed the belief in keeping America a nation of, by and for white people. On December 31st, 1862, he signed an agreement with one Bernard Koch to take 435 black so-called contrabands to Il Avash, a satellite island off the coast of Haiti. The next day, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but the fact that he had also negotiated a colonization scheme, which he had likely intended to accompany and complement the proclamation, is largely unknown. So how does that action by Lincoln to you reveal Lincoln's racism? Uh, Lincoln said many times that he wanted black people out of the country. Uh, he had a department set up during the war, uh, and the goal of it was to get black people out of the country. He said he did not want slavery to spread. That is how the Republican Party came into being. They were dedicated to stopping uh, the spread of uh, slavery into the new territories. And, um, some were abolitionists, some were not. Uh, Lincoln... 
Uh, his goal was to mollify the slaveocracy, as they were called. He offered compensation to the slaveholding uh, states. They always turned down the money because, uh, and why wouldn't they? Slaveholding was endlessly profitable, so there's no amount of money that would make up for the loss of the property. Uh, he, his goal was to stop the spread of slavery, and then to disappear black people altogether. As late as uh, about a week before he was assassinated, he, discuss he discussed with a Union general uh, coming up with a plan to send black people away. He met with the group of black leaders at the time and told them to their faces that uh, uh, the presence of black people in the country was the cause of the war and uh, that they should uh, get out, that they should should leave. And I, I wrote about this colony because we're told that uh, uh, Lincoln changed his mind. He started off talking about colonization and then he stopped, but he never did. And he actually, they, uh, there were attempts to start uh, these uh, settlements in uh, first in Panama and uh, other Central American countries. And uh, uh, these countries protested. They did not want black people sent to their, to their lands. And they actually had it did the settlement did not last but they actually did lincoln did this um sent black people away and that is what he always wanted to do towards the end of his life he wanted um as the war was winding down it was clear the union would win he again uh came up with uh, a figure for compensation that would have given uh the slaveholders until 1900 to free their enslaved people. So that is the story of Abraham uh, uh, Lincoln, and uh, he is one of the most beloved figures in American history. And if people want to love him, they should go ahead and do that. But that's not a reason for the rest of us to cover up uh, these things that are easily provable. So should black voters then understand the Republican Party as the party that gave them freedom? And do you think there is any lingering positive sentiment within the black community toward the Republican Party because of the myths around Lincoln's desire to free the slaves? Um, uh, supposed desire to free slaves. Right, right, he, right. Uh, he, well, the Republic, you know, black people were Republicans for a long time. They were the black people's party. Frederick Douglass said in the late 1800s, the Republican Party is the ship, all else is the sea. And uh, for decades, the Republicans were the preferred uh, party of black people in the North, that is to say those who could vote. And the Democrats were the party of the segregated South. Uh, the they, the two switched sides in the late 60s when uh, Lyndon Johnson, um, because he was forced by the mass movement, after he shepherded through the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act legislation, then slowly but uh, surely uh, the uh, parties flipped. And uh, now the uh, white Republicans, uh, white people in the South are solidly Republican. Uh, all over the country, most white people vote for Republicans and black people give 90 percent of their votes to 
Democrats. So that was the case for many years, but now it is the Democrats who black people look to, um, to uh, if not do right by us, but to keep the Republicans out of office. And that leads to many bad things happening. Um, we have a situation now where Trump, the open racist, is president, and this is after black people followed the dictates of the establishment in the corporate media and supporting Hillary Clinton, who we were told could not lose, and yet we ended up with Trump anyway. So there are many reasons to question that um, that practice that has become accepted for so many decades. The way out of this is for black people to be more active in the party. We are now at a point where uh, most Americans are told the only way to impact uh, politics is to vote. And we are not encouraged to do anything else. And black people would be better served this year, this election year, uh, in talking about making demands of all the candidates uh, and uh, being actors and making sure the Democratic nominee is someone who uh, answers, uh, who responds to our demands, draw lines in the sand and say, this is what we have to have. This is not acceptable to us. And we can play a role in shaping politics and getting a nominee that we can support with enthusiasm uh, instead of someone like Hillary Clinton, who uh, ended up losing anyway because of her uh, many shortcomings. How do we view Lincoln differently then when we don't see him as the person who freed the slaves, but as the person who wanted to ethnically cleanse black people from the United States? How does that change our view today of politics? Well, it should change our view of the entire country and its history, and it means uh, accepting things that are uncomfortable about this country, that uh, it is fundamentally a racist country, the Constitution is a racist pro-slavery document, and it explains so many things that have uh, happened ever since the nation was founded. And I think that's the hard part for people. Uh, it's not only changing, uh, having the proper information about certain people like Lincoln, but in doing so, that inevitably means that people have to acknowledge things about the nation as a whole that they would rather not. So if you want to say Lincoln was a smart man, yes, he was. If you want to admire him because he was self-educated, yes, he was. He did have very uh, eloquent things to say about the newly freed people, about the uh, soldiers, the U.S. colored troops who fought for the Union Army. But then we have to acknowledge what he actually did. And uh, we have to get over thinking that uh, we must be positive about the nation, about the government, about the people who have represented this system. And we need to be positive about ourselves. We need to be positive about the people who opposed them uh, successfully. And I, it'll, it'll take a while. It's, it's difficult for most people to, to comprehend because we have been propagandized. And uh, in acknowledging that we've been propagandized, 
we have to admit that it's hard for us to face these facts. And let's move to the 20th century. You write that in the late 1960s and into the 1970s, it was common to see in black households in America a portrait of JFK, Bobby Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. The Kennedy brothers uh, profited from an undeserved reputation. John F. Kennedy enjoyed one of the best marketing propaganda efforts in modern history. He had great speechwriters, the love of the elite classes, and Ivy League education in a family who had been famous for decades. Then he was shot to death. His team of image makers and their friends in media had no trouble burnishing his image. But he's often credited with starting the process that would lead to the Civil Rights Act during the Johnson administration. How much credit should we give to JFK and Bobby for at least building the foundation, getting the ball rolling on civil rights for black citizens? Well, it's the people who got the ball rolling. Uh, you know, Kennedy's first meeting with Martin Luther King was held in secret. Uh, as, as I pointed out at that time, the Democrats were the party of the segregated South. And he, uh, like many of his uh, Democratic predecessors, always used that as their excuse for not uh, doing uh, the right thing and uh, defending the human rights of black people. People, uh, they did not. The Kennedys did not like the Freedom Riders. They, they were Bobby Kennedy especially was terrible. Uh, any protest, uh, any demands black people made, he saw as a threat to his brother's presidency. They initially did not even defend or give protection to the Freedom Riders and and others. Bobby Kennedy uh, allowed J. Edgar Hoover to begin the surveillance of Martin Luther King, and uh, and. Others. So uh, once again, we see that it was the movement that uh, pushed them, the people getting the ball rolling, which uh, started this movement. Uh, Bobby hated the March on Washington. He saw that as a threat to his brother and had nothing positive to say about it. So uh, it's it's unfortunate. And it is true. You can still occasionally see those pictures of uh, King with the Kennedys. I think it's because they were all assassinated as well. But um, uh, but that is the truth of the matter. These are not people that we should look to. We should look to ourselves and look to what the people can accomplish when we are determined to make change. You write that John Kennedy began his road to under undeserved sainthood before his election as president. When King was arrested in Atlanta just weeks before the 1960 election, the candidate called Coretta King to express his concern. Bobby worked behind the scenes to get King and his colleagues out of jail. And the beginning of yet another good for black people presidency myth began. Why doesn't that singular act prove that JFK and Bobby Kennedy were good for black people? Well, they were, uh, it was close to election day. They knew the election was going to be close. Um, as I said, a lot of black people were still voting for Republicans in the late 50s and uh, 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 into 1960. So this was an effort to, uh, uh, to um, uh, make headway in a very, very tight race, which it was. And uh, uh, King's father, um, he actually said that he wasn't going to vote for Kennedy because Kennedy was Catholic. He was quoted as saying this, but once he called Coretta and he he uh, took that uh, action, he said, "Now I've got I've got a pocket of votes, and I'm going to give them all to John F. Kennedy now." So it was a politically expedient move. Uh, it's it was the right thing to do, but it doesn't prove very much. It only proves that he wanted to win 
And uh, this was uh, an act that he took to try to break through in this very close election race. And you write that while Kennedy would hold a photo opportunity with Merle Evers, the widow of Medgar Evers, he did nothing to keep people like Evers from being killed by Klansmen in the first place. Despite pleas from Dr. King and others, the administration repeatedly refused to provide protection for people who only wanted to exercise their citizenship rights. All of this because he, Kennedy did not want to lose the racist support of Southern Democrats. But Kennedy nearly lost to Nixon, and without that Southern support, he may have lost the South. So getting back to the, our very first question, so wasn't Kennedy, despite what Du Bois said only a decade earlier, the lesser of two evils? Uh, slightly lesser. I think our what we should be thinking about in this country is instead of excusing people, instead of thinking that we have to throw in our lot with uh, a, a, a half of the corrupt duopoly, we have to think about building left politics. We need a real left party in this country. We need a real peace party, a real workers party, a real people's party, a real justice party. That is what we should be doing instead of uh, talking about these marginal differences and defending. uh, Inevitably, we end up defending the indefensible and we end up defending people who do things that are quite awful. So uh, I I think that the talk of lesser evilism needs to end and we need to talk about how to empower ourselves to get a political party that we can really support wholeheartedly instead of making excuses and elevating people just because they're not Republicans. And I think it's, I fear it's going to be even worse now with Trump being in office. Uh, We're already hearing at least he's not Trump. So Michael Bloomberg, who I think would actually be worse than Trump, as I wrote in Black Agenda Report this week, we see black elected officials endorsing him. It's also because he's rich. He's giving out cash. Let's let's be honest. Uh, And um, I I think now that impetus is going to be even worse because uh, of Trump. And every we will be told that anybody and how hard is that to be better than Trump? Uh, But that need this needs to end. This needs to stop. And we also have a political party, the Democrats, who can't even win. Uh, They should never have lost to Trump in the first place. Uh, While Obama was president, the Democrats lost nearly a thousand seats across the country in state legislatures and in Congress. So uh, it's time to to stop. It's time to think about and debate. And we're going to have to have uh, difficult fights with people. And that's but that's okay, so that we can have politics that really represents the people's needs instead of excusing uh, horrible people because they're only marginally less bad than someone else. So the Civil War, the freeing of the slaves was not an act of President Lincoln. It was an act that was pushed and motivated by abolitionists, by slaves themselves. We see in the civil rights era, this is not something that was the creation of LBJ or JFK. This is something that is the creation of the people as we started our conversation. Now let's move on to Obama. You write, those who dared to pose a question about Obama's candidacy were shouted down in favor of the prospect of seeing a black president. Some claimed that they would have make demands of Obama. 
after he emerged victorious. They would hold his feet to the fire, as the saying went. To what extent were his feet held to the fire? Are the shortcomings of the Obama administration? Because we had this huge conversation right after he was elected that there were so many people who were part of the anti-war movement, part of the activism that was against the George W. Bush administration, and they said, we cannot protest, we cannot push this president, we cannot push Obama, it's going to split us up and it'll turn him into a one-term president. How, how much of the shortcomings of the Obama administration do you think were because his feet were not held to the fire by the people who can make change? Well, it, it all started during the campaign. And uh, uh, my colleague Glenn Ford at Black Agenda Report says the anti-war movement and Goldman Sachs were all on the same side in that uh, 2008 election. He raised 10 times as much as John McCain. So that told you whose interest he represented. So, of course, he got into office and bailed out the banks, but didn't bail out the people, especially black people who suffered more than anything else from the financial crisis that was created by uh, the banks. But the desire to see uh, blackface in a high place is still very, very strong. Um, the fact that there was so much uh, Racial animus against him only reinforced that uh, that determination. Uh, a lot of white liberals were were silenced. They didn't want to be called racist. There seemed to be no way for them to safely uh, uh, oppose Obama, and uh, so the end result was. Uh, also this lesser evilism. We have a Democrat in. We can't criticize anything he does. It could have been worse. You could have a Republican. So that silences everybody. So when a Democrat gets in, they do what uh, the Goldman Sachs of the world want them to do. And people who are on uh, various uh, places on the left spectrum silence themselves. So we got, uh, we got war, we got um, austerity, uh, and uh, we got money for the uh, banks and not for us. We got even Obamacare, you know, that's the one thing they always say to shut you up. But we got Obamacare, which was a bailout of big pharma and the insurance companies, and there are still millions of people who aren't even covered. And uh, so that is the end result of uh, the, um, the uh, surrender to Obama and to the Democratic Party. You write Obama successfully marketed himself as an anti-war candidate, but he never said anything of the kind. He said he was only opposed to dumb wars. But wasn't he against the 2003 invasion of Iraq, thus making him an anti-war candidate? Because that was the main reason I heard a lot of people in the anti-war movement putting their support behind Obama. Well, you know, it's interesting. He, um, he said something. The New York Times asked him, uh, how he would have voted in the um, uh, that vote in the Senate to authorize the use of force. And he responded, I don't know. And this is something that was covered up then. You can always tell who the establishment wants because the press will cover up for them. Uh, so he, uh, dumb wars in, to him meant uh, sending U.S. troops abroad, which uh, always uh, generates opposition among the people, so he had proxy wars instead. So the the jihadists, who we were told, uh, al-Qaeda-related groups, who we were told were our enemy, uh, were the ones who the U.S. helped to destroy Libya and attempted to do in Syria. But anybody paying attention could tell that he was not the anti-war candidate. It's just that Hillary Clinton was in the Senate, and she had voted to authorize 
force in Iraq. And uh, so she was uh, hoisted on her own petard by uh, her her vote as compared to uh, Obama and then, of course, McCain in the general election. So he could pretend to be uh, on the anti-war spectrum when he was not at all. And uh, also, I think we have to admit the anti-war movement was more anti-Republican than it really was pro-peace. And everyone surrendered, everyone capitulated in order to uh, support this Democrat who was supposed to be so much better in so many ways. But And we're still seeing it now. You know, Bernie Sanders is the most progressive, I, I, I suppose he is, on domestic policy. But he said last week that he would uh, uh, he would support um, uh, a force against uh, Iran or North Korea if it looked like they were going to get a nuclear weapon. So we're we're seeing, uh, and I hope he didn't mean that, but he said it, and he said things like it, and that is the problem. One of the problems with this duopoly, and uh, that is why in 1956 uh, Du Bois knew what he was talking about. And here we are uh, 60 years later and in the same conundrum. We have been speaking with Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist Margaret Kimberly, author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Margaret's Freedom Rider column appears weekly at blackagendareport.com and is widely reprinted elsewhere. You can find her blog at freedomrider.blogspot.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Freedom Ride Blog. And you can support Margaret at her Patreon page, patreon.com slash Margaret Kimberly. One last question for you, Margaret. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write the rules of being a serious candidate. Go something like this. Don't make rich people angry. Don't make white people angry. Don't appear to help black people in any way because that gets white people angrier than just about anything else. At this moment, Bernie Sanders is the Democratic Party front runner for the nomination for president. Can Bernie Sanders win if he makes rich white people angry and promises to help black people as well? No, he can't. They're going to cheat him. They're going to make sure he doesn't get the nomination. And Bloomberg's presence is, um, you know, the uh, the billionaires are uh, usually they bundle checks or they have a super PAC. And Bloomberg said, I'm cutting out the middleman. I'm going to do this myself. And uh, while he had a bad debate, he is not gone. He may not get enough votes. But the Democratic Party establishment is determined not to uh, upset their corporate uh, uh, sponsors, their corporate donors, and they will not let him get the nomination. They are going to cheat him. They all said so in the debate last night. He was the only one who said the person with the most delegates ought to get the nomination. So I think we're going to see in action this year that um, the system is uh, the people who run it are determined not to have any change. Even his liberalish reforms, he is not a socialist. He wants to give us things we used to have all the time. We used to have a minimum wage that went up on a regular basis. But uh, Bloomberg and uh, the other billionaires who run our lives have determined that that is not going to happen at all. 
Margaret, this has been such a pleasure, this conversation. I've enjoyed it so much. You are now going to be annoyed for the rest of your life because I'm going to be emailing you, asking you to come back on the show. This has just been such a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it. Say hello to Glenn. And again, my condolences on the passing of Bruce. Thank you so much. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is Hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who support This Is Hell in a moment, as well as the moment of truth, this week's Hangover Cure, and what's happening on the show next week. This week's question from Hell is, what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at this is Hell Radio. Email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins the book we just discussed, Margaret Kimberly's Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Alex, any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Oh, yeah. Leslie D. says, I was saying Boomberg. <laughs> There's another reference to that uh, cartoon show. <laughs> Uh, Johnny H. says, your money smells like testicles from too much stop and frisk. That's so gross. Johnny. <laughs> uh, Ladio says, Mike, you don't look so short sitting on that pile of hundreds. Corey F. says, Mayor Bloomberg is not the grumpy Grinch that promises to ruin the election. What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg? Once you cast that check, Braden S. says, I would piss on him if he was on fire. Oh, that's Probably. Nice. Uh, Bradley R. says, Mike is the cool. He relating to people like we. Viral meme funny time. I'm not bought. <laughs> Nick A says, I love lamp. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Uh, Twin Ports Democratic Socialists of America says, thanks for joining the Democratic Socialists of America, comrade. <laughs> uh, Louis D says, here's your throat back. Thanks for the loan. <laughs> Raymond R says, Mike may be a racist, misogynist, xenophobic, Islamophobe, but he's, at least he's not anti-Semitic. David S says, he's much friskier in person. Justin M says, my boy Mike got that big hand energy. Uh, Brian C says, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And Thomas H says, Mike Bloomberg let me talk to him via his campaign manager for a whole two minutes, and that guy assures me he has a black friend. What am I missing in I Like Lamp? Do you, I, don't, I don't know. I kind of like it, though. I do, too. I don't know. It's such a non sequitur. I Like Lamp. I'm going to put that on my list of ones that I really liked. I Like Lamp. And who said that, anyway? I can't remember. Nick? Was that Nick who said I like Lamp? I think it was. On yeah, Patreon this uh, uh, on Patreon this week, we will be playing the interviews uh, we mentioned when we were talking with Kate Wagner of McMansionHell.com about our article, The Baffler, Staring at Hell, The Aesthetics of Architecture in a Ruined World. Kate's piece is about ruin porn, places like Chernobyl, where people actually go to have their wedding pictures taken, as if the backdrop of a nuclear meltdown is somehow romantic and inspiring feelings of love, despite causing cancer. Kate writes, these visitors to Chernobyl transform themselves from tourists into brave survivors at the end of times, marveling at the growing irradiated grass. She said this is a, there's a kind of heroic feeling of survival when visiting ruined porn. And I know what she means. Detroit is full of ruins and there were plenty more ruins at the end of the last century than there were now than there are now. One of Detroit's most impressive is the Michigan Central Station, a large grand railway station that was never fully in operation or completed. However, my mom worked there prior to getting married and I always wanted to visit the place. So friends of mine and I went back to Detroit in the late 90s, walked around the empty building, graffiti scrawled on the wall, warned us you can't see us but we're watching you as I went up the stairs under those ominous words I realized we were not alone in an empty building but in the home of hundreds and hundreds 
of homeless people. As we left, I felt like I had survived something, that I had gone through some kind of physical and mental challenge and came out alive and victorious. I didn't know why I had that feeling. I just did. But after talking to Kate, I realized part of that feeling was that I had survived the destruction of Detroit, that I went back and confronted it, and that destruction was now long in the past, and I made it out. I feel guilty about that feeling, but I at least understand it now after talking to Kate. The question from hell for Kate, uh, which was really for me, was should I feel guilty about having celebrated the ruined porn of Detroit back in the 90s by having a guest on the show to promote his book of Detroit ruined porn and for liking the art installation by Tyree Guyton, the uh, Heidelberg Project, where Guyton took abandoned Detroit homes and decorated them, making them into sculptures that comment on urban decay, but also issues like abortion. Kate's answer was, we all do stupid stuff when we're young. So this week on Patreon, we are sharing that stupid stuff exclusively with Patreon subscribers. Our December 1998 and 1999 interviews with Detroit artist Lowell Boileau, who had just published the, uh, a beautiful book of photography called The Fabulous Ruins of Detroit. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up during the Moment of Truth, contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff punctures the balloons in hands and feet of the faithful. We'll also have the rest of your answers to the question from hell and who is this week's winner, as well as this week's hangover cure and what's on next week's shows. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while it was high. Not enough this week, though. This is hell. I know you have half on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The victim soul. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. In 1224, two years before he died, St. Francis of Assisi had a vision of a seraph with six wings who gave him stigmata. He was the first one to do that shtick, wounds magically appearing on the body at the points where crucified Jesus had them. I remember... I remember at maybe age 12 when I first read about people developing stigmata in, I think, The People's Almanac, edited by the father-son duo who were two-thirds of the editorial team that brought us the Book of Lists, Irving Wallace and David Wallachinsky. It inspired me to seek more such entertainment. My world, for a while, was a magical one in which Sasquatches, Yeti, and Mothmen appeared and disappeared, evading empirical confirmation of their existence. Mysterious meteors with no apparent source punctured car windshields on cliffside roads somewhere in the British Isles. Frogs or yellow rain or fish fell from the skies, reported by locals but defying explanation by experts. On stone plains, ancient aliens once made uncanny designs, still visible but only only from high above the earth. Kasper Hauser, the Elephant Man, lycanthropes, and other historical human enigmas peopled my inner universe, along with disembodied spirits. I grew up in the boring suburbs, so a Fortean cosmology was my escape. So by what right dare I mock those who say there'll be pie in the sky when you die? I suppose there are many who believe in the sky pie. 
After all, crazy beliefs run rampant these days. There's a huge number of voters devoted to Donald Dump, the actual worst human being under all circumstances. At a party, he's boorish, social climby, pussy grabby, and a crappy dancer. In politics, he's a liar, a kleptocrat, and a narcissistic, capricious sack of bile. In business, he's a cheat, a purveyor of poor quality goods, and a deadbeat debtor. On the golf course, he's a whiffer, a piker, a poor sport, a cheat, and he cuts a gruesomely ungainly figure in his garbage attire and even trashier torso. These people believe he's being persecuted worse than Jesus was. Cicero asserted that all peoples, regardless of the silliness of their specific beliefs, have some concept of the divine. He considered human belief in divine power or divine something to be a law of nature. Although we balk at generalities like this about human nature or nature vis-a-vis humans, it's hard to disagree with them just looking around at people, including myself. In any case, at least since the 13th century, when St. Francis first started spontaneously spouting blood from holes in his hands, feet, and side, the idea of sacred suffering and spiritual union with the passion of Jesus has provided an entertaining twist on the idea that all the nastiness of life is somehow worth it. From the perspective of secular history, these ideas are meant to convince those screwed by the power imbalance of an unjust society that it's actually okay that things are unfair. In the world of the dead, rewards and punishments will be distributed according to the perfect justice of God, unlike here on earth where the sinful flesh of humanity causes those in power to pervert justice to their advantage. (laughs) Boy, are they in for a rude awakening in the world to come, huh? But is it really such an ordeal to have stigmata? Women bleed every month, and while they've been known to complain about it, you generally don't see them trying to use menstruation as a ticket into paradise or a get-out-of-hell-free card, let alone claiming it's comparable to the suffering of the saints. Stigmata, schmigschmata, get over yourself. A few consider themselves lucky enough to have been chosen to suffer in harmonic sympathy with Jesus. They are the victim souls. To make themselves holy, they might even mortify their flesh with self-flagellation, penitential self-denial, and wear uncomfortable underwear made of scratchy burlap or even barbed wire. Hey, no pain, no gain. The victim soul is a Catholic thing, mostly, but it's an old idea. Some of the Talmudic rabbis were tortured to death, a process reputed to have brought merit to their souls. And in the beliefs coming down from the Vedas in India, fasting and other self-denial can bring divine merit, even to someone with impure motives. Also in the Vedic legacy, we find the idea that economic class and duty are divinely ordained pretty convenient for those born to rule, and as for those born to serve, they get an intangible blessing as a lovely parting gift. I guess in a world in which suffering is unavoidable, it's just good old positive thinking to believe misery, persecution, disease, poverty, and such serve some function in the divine scheme. In some ways, the belief gets its pithiest explanation from Stephen Schwartz, who wrote the music and lyrics for the 1970s musical Godspell in the song All for the Best. The song explains that, well, let's suppose your life is rough. While some men are born to live at ease, doing what they please, richer than the bees are in honey, the best in every town, best at shaking down, best at making mountains of money, if you're feeling unhappy and resentful. Don't forget that when you get to heaven, you'll be blessed. All your wrongs will be redressed. And someone's got to be oppressed. Yes, it's all for the best. 
The Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian, ends with the cheerful character played by Eric Idle being hoisted on a crucifix next to Graham Chapman's long-suffering Brian and leading all the crucified in the song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. It's not just a humorous juxtaposition, a Golgotha hillside of people nailed to crosses, left to die, whistling and singing a happy tune. It's really a jab at one of Christianity's main functions, to control the people's disgruntlement with the social order. It's a pretty deep satirical cut at the Godspiels. You know, the Godspiels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, them apostles with their Godspiels. Bob Geldof, anti-poverty ex-activist, former frontman of the Boomtown Rats and portrayer of Pink Floyd in the movie The Wall, met Mother Teresa, nurse, nun, and erstwhile bete noir of deceased drunk contrarian Christopher Hitchens in Ethiopia in 1985 while gearing up for the Live Aid concert Bob was organizing. I think Teresa was going to sit on, on drums with Twisted Sister. Or maybe I dreamed that. Now he's Sir Bob, and she's Blessed Teresa and dead. At the time, the two argued a lot as they ministered to the impoverished Ethiopians. One thing they argued about was Teresa's claim to see the suffering of Christ in the face of every famine-afflicted child. Bob, contrary to Cicero, had no concept of the divine and found the conceptual transformation of actual suffering people into symbols of totemic martyrdom dehumanizing, objectifying, and distasteful. Because what is a victim soul but a martyr? or at least a person thought to share in the martyrdom of the world's most famous martyr, Donald Dump, I mean Jesus. And that's what the defenders of the poor, persecuted, uber-wealthy, and their pundit mouthpieces want us all to be, except they don't value the martyrdom of Jesus. They consider Jesus a sucker, or at best a victim of his own magical thinking. Expect a lot of that sentiment this year, especially if Bernie wins the nomination. Oh, sure, let's just give everyone free healthcare and education and a pony. Because that's what we are to them, either spoiled children or suckers gullible enough to accept our sacred suffering. If we fight, we're jealous. If we acquiesce, we're stupid. It's called blaming the victim soul. In the meantime, the real victim souls are the rank-and-file white people who resent the moral burden of having to care about anyone outside their tribe. They feel victimized by the PC police, who insist they take into account those in the world who've been robbed, raped, and enslaved by conquering armies whose descendants still profit with privilege. Oh, how great is the pain of the white man! Oh, his eternal suffering! H.A. Albus Homo! Behold the white man, the white man of sorrows! Remember, he had to render unto Caesar, too. Except he only remembers that when he wants to criticize those demanding equality, never when he should be holding the uber-wealthy accountable for sucking up and despoiling all the riches of the earth. The victim souls, whether followers of Jesus or of Dump, are a paradox, which is the one good thing about them. They feel like they're his special children, and yet in a way, they're very specially forsaken by him. It's uncanny how long this idea that suffering is good for the soul has maintained its power. The solutions to our problems are difficult, they'll require effort, but it's not complicated, it's not brain science or rocket surgery. Suffering is bad for you, it makes you suffer. Misery is not ennobling, it makes you miserable. Poverty can be cured by transferring wealth to the poor from those with an obscene surplus and from the war, finance, and environmental destruction industries. Renounce the victim soul con. It's a grift. See through it and don't play their shell game anymore. If we don't get Bernie or if they thwart him or assassinate him or even just assassinate his character, we're still going to fight. We're the people. 
All governments, profiteers, and religions fear us. Or else, why would they constantly try to deceive and control us? We will have our way by ballot or blood. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. That was really great. And I love the uh, mention of Christopher <laughs> Hitchens and his uh, love affair with M Mother Teresa. That was very Oh, nice. my God. They were such an item. <laughs> they were such an item. All right, yeah. Jeffy, until next time. Until next time, what stay should I do? Stay beautiful. Oh, I have to get beautiful first, and I need some lotion. <laughs> Life <laughs> a nightmare of want. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page or tweet it to us or send it via email. person with the best answer, our favorite answer, wins a book we just discussed on the show, Margaret Kimberly's Prejudential. Alex, do you have the rest of the answers to this week's question from Yeah, hell? just a couple more. Uh, what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check? David S. says... <clears throat> Yeah, that's all right. Oh, well, the cough button works. Hey, I'd like to say something nice, but I just forced him to sign an NDA. <laughs> Eric T says, <laughs> folks, we've got democracy up against the wall. A vote for Bloomberg is a bullet in the chamber. Let's do this. <laughs> Kurt E says, he's way more competent at fascism than Trump. Aaron B says, thank you, sir. May I have another? Eddie C says, Mike Bloomberg is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. And finally, Jeffy D says... He gave me a check and I cashed it. My answer to this week's question from hell, what are what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? Seriously, Michael, you were great at last night's debate. Seriously. I, I'm not kidding you. You were really, really good. You convinced everybody to vote for you. You're fantastic. Now, the answers I liked the most this week were mine. Uh, David saying, I'd love to say something nice, but I just forced him to sign an NDA, one Alex just read. Uh, Eddie saying, Michael Bloomberg is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. Another one that Alex just read that's in reference to the Manchurian candidate. Sebastian saying, don't ask what his money can do for you. Ask what you can do for uh, your, his money. Sean Seamus saying, I actually feel lighter and healthier after selling my kidneys. It's very liberating. Nick saying, I like lamp. Luke saying, Mike Bloomberg's boost boots taste the best. Walter, you have a better haircut than Chuck's. And Jack saying, this guy sure knows how to buy my silence. Any of those really stick out to you there, Alex? Uh, I'm always in favor of uh, responses about selling your body parts. Yeah, all right. I like that one, too. So, Sean Seamus, you are the winner to this week of this week's question from hell for answering. I actually feel lighter and healthier after selling my kidneys. It's very liberating. You have won Margaret Kimberly's book, Prejudential. Just send us a message via Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and we will get that book out to you ASAP. Alex, who's on the show next week, starting with Monday's live streaming show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time. All right. We're halfway booked on the show. Uh, Monday, Paul Cockshot is going to be on to talk about his book, How the World Works, the story of human labor from prehistory to the modern day. And thanks, Calvin, for suggesting that, even though we'd already booked him. What about on Tuesday's show? I uh, don't know yet. Tuesday, Tuesday, Thursday, I don't know yet. Uh, Wednesday, Tori Reed is going to be back on to talk, or not back on. He's going to be on to talk about his book, which I'm typing to try to find the name of. Uh, not that one. Not that one. 
Okay, here he is. Uh, Torrey Reed will be on to talk about his book, Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. And uh, so and then we're back here on Thursday with a moment of truth. And we're going to be uh, naming the winner for the question from Al, as always. I want to thank this week's guests, depression and contemporary culture and literature scholar Mikkel Krauss-Fransen, author of Going Nowhere Slow, The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression. You can follow Mikkel on Twitter at Fransen underscore Mikkel. Architecture and cultural critic Kate Wagner, who wrote the Baffler article, Staring at Hell, the aesthetics of architecture in a ruined world. Find her writing at mcmansionhell.com. Also, thanks to John Bellamy Foster, co-author with Brett Clark of The Robbery of Nature, Capitalism and the Ecological Rift. You can find out more about John at his website, johnbellamyfoster.org. And thanks, special thanks to today's guest, Black, Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist, Margaret Kimberly, author of Prejudential. You can find out more about uh, Margaret by going to her blog at Freedom Rider blogspot.com this week's hangover cure is time talk to you tomorrow on patreon i hope to see all of you at this is hell office hours tomorrow night friday beginning at 7 p.m at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon in chicago and then back here at this is hell.com monday at 10 a.m chicago time i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host podcast host live streaming host chuck mertz producing this week's show alex jerry thanks to jeff thanks to ronaldo thanks to everybody who worked on this week's show there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show that's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky folks on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words everybody's stupid my demon is on my butt uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride